You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome. Welcome back to Fired Up. Well, here we are. It's Monday, which means it is time to talk politics right here on WJMSRadio.com. I'm Steve. I host the show each week, and this week we've got a lot to cover it's been an exciting week. Uh, I'm actually, uh, as I record this show on Sunday, I'm actually getting a little bit of a late start because I hung out to listen to Donald Trump's speech at CPAC, and we're going to talk about that later on in the episode. So let's get right to it. Uh, first things first, as we always do, let's update you on where we are with COVID-19. Uh, we are at 28.6 million cases reported. Uh, deaths are at 512.8 thousand. Both of these numbers, although increases, have uh, continued the downward slope of the increased number of cases and deaths week over week. So that's part of the good news. The other good news, and actually it's, it's pretty, pretty great news, is that Johnson & Johnson's uh, single-dose COVID-19 vaccine has received approval from the FDA for its emergency use authorization, uh, which means that millions of this vaccine will be hitting the markets uh, within the next week to 10 days. Uh, and that's excellent news as we continue to make progress in our efforts at vaccinating uh, Americans against the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. To date, there have been 78.9 million uh, vaccinations uh, going into arms of Americans, uh, and that number does include uh, both uh, single-dose uh, injections as well as the two-dose injections that have already been completed. But uh, we continue to grow those numbers week over week. That's a good thing. Let's keep up the progress. And as always, even as we wait for the vaccine to come our way as individuals, let's make sure that we continue our, our practice of social distancing, wearing our mask when in groups and where social distancing isn't possible. And of course, good hygiene, hand washing, not touching face and eyes and so forth. So, you know, the, the coronavirus continues to be a battle. Uh, we are seeing again a continued decrease in both the number of cases, correspondingly the number of deaths occurring from the disease. But that doesn't mean that we need to slow down, slack up, or, or give up our own personal efforts at staying safe. So let, let's make sure we're doing those things. Let's make sure we're following the medical and scientific advice that we are getting. And let's continue to fight this and, and drive it down to where it is not a problem in our country anymore. So it's been a busy, busy political week. Uh, you know, topped off, as I said a few minutes ago, by the uh, opening of the uh, CPAC or uh, Conservative Political Action Committee Convention down in Orlando, Florida. Uh, there have been a wide range of speakers that have shown up. Uh, I will admit that I have not been glued to it uh, tightly, uh, you know, 24-7, um, but 
you know, from what I have seen, it is a lot of the players that we have seen over the last four years, you know, in, in orbiting in the circles of the Trump administration with a lot of the same messaging going out. Uh, but as I said, we'll we'll dig into what uh, former President Trump had to say uh, in in a little bit in the episode today. But I wanted to start off with some of the the hot political subjects that are going on. One thing to be aware of, um, you know, we've talked on this show numerous times about the efforts at voter suppression, uh, primarily, you know, and, and pretty much exclusively executed by the Republican Party as a way of limiting uh, the people that actually can vote or the process by which they vote how ballots are counted, you know, mail-in ballots and so forth. Well, that effort hasn't stopped just because the election ended four months ago. Um, you know, there have been a total of 165 bills that have been filed across 33 states looking at uh, increasing or expanding restrictions on voting uh, going forward. Uh, in contrast, there have also been 340 uh, bills introduced or carried over or you know, expanded uh, across those same 33 states in looking at you know, expanding access to voting and some of the parameters going on with the voting process. But the, the efforts at, at voter suppression and, and voter restriction really deserve our attention. And I want to just uh, highlight a few points as to what many of these bills contain and some of the actions uh, that have been proposed. Uh, in an article that was put out by the Brennan Center, and this article came out on February 8th, uh, this and it's titled Voting Laws Roundup, February 2021. Uh, as I said, uh, thus far this year, 33 states have introduced, free filed, or carried over 165 bills to restrict voting access. These proposals primarily seek, one, to limit mail voting access, two, to impose stricter voter ID requirements, and three, to slash voter registration opportunities, four, to enable more aggressive voter roll purges. Uh, the bills are un an unmistakable response to the unfounded and dangerous lies uh, about fraud that followed the 2020 election. And this is part of the article that was put out by the Brennan Center uh, for Politics. Um, it's the Brennan Center for Justice, actually. And you can go to their website and you know, read the article for yourself. But to give you an idea of some of the things that these bills are talking about, uh, one is, is limiting who can vote by mail. Uh, 14 bills in nine states would make the excuse requirement more stringent for absentee voting to eliminate or to eliminate uh, no excuse mail voting. For example, a bill in Missouri would eliminate COVID-19 concerns as an excuse while four different proposals in Pennsylvania seek to eliminate um, no-excuse mail voting, a policy just adopted with bipartisan support in 2019. Lawmakers in Arizona, Georgia, North Dakota, and Oklahoma 
also seek to eliminate no excuse absentee voting. Uh, you know, another segment of some of these uh, legislative efforts include making it harder to obtain ballots. States like Arizona, Pennsylvania have introduced bills that would eliminate the permanent early voter list. That is, people who sign up to always receive their ballots uh, for vote by mail. Uh, that would be eliminated. Bills in Arizona, Hawaii, and New Jersey would eliminate permanent absentee voting lists, and Florida would reduce the length of time a voter could remain on the absentee list without having to reapply. Currently in Florida, uh, once you apply to be put on the absentee ballot list, you're on it for two years. Uh, Florida is looking to shorten that time frame and, and make it a little more uh, difficult in order to uh, get on that list. Um, so, you know, there are also restrictions, uh, you know, and barriers in completing or casting ballots. You know, a, a bill in Arizona would further restrict who can assist voters in collecting or n and delivering mail ballots. Existing policy already limits such assistance to family and household members. Add a voter ID requirement for turning in mail ballots in person and require all mail ballots to be notarized. Uh, legislatures in eight other states have proposed bills to impose or increase strict limits on who can assist in returning a voter's ballot, while a South Carolina bill would impose a photo ID requirement for anyone returning another person's absentee ballot. Four states uh, have introduced legislation to make it harder to satisfy existing witness requirements. Uh, among them, Arizona's bill would require all mail ballots to be notarized. South Carolina's bill would require a witness to include their driver's, driver's license or state voter registration number. And two Virginia bills would ask witnesses to print their name and provide their residential address. The Alaska proposal states that if a court invalidates the witness signature requirement because of a state of emergency, the requirement goes back into effect after the emergency declaration expires. Uh, in Minnesota, their bill would impose a new witness requirement, as noted above, and Oklahoma bill seeks to mandate a nationwide witness and notary requirement. Other, other portions of the legislation uh, that are, are coming out are limitations on absentee ballot return options, Several other states are setting, you know, restrictions on uh, collection of ballots and turning them in, also known as uh, ballot harvesting. Um, you know, there are, are bills that, you know, as I mentioned, bring more burdensome signature matching requirements. Uh, increased poll watcher access in at least seven states have introduced legislation to increase poll watcher access to absentee ballot processing and canvassing activities. Uh, in New Hampshire, uh, a bill would require that members of the general public be, a, be permitted to observe without obstruction. Similarly, George's bill directs that restrictions on watchers should be as minimal as possible. Uh, several states, uh, Kansas and Pennsylvania among them, uh, have introduced legislation that would require uh, that would require mail ballots to be received earlier in order to be counted. 
The Kansas bill would eliminate the Secretary of State's discretion to count ballots received later than three days after Election Day. In response to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision permitting the counting of timely postmarked ballots received within three days of Election Day, you know, and, and so on and so forth. You know, there are, are legislative approaches that are looking to, to go to stricter voter ID requirements. As I mentioned above, uh, you know, uh, increasing requirements for notarization of absentee ballots filed. Uh, in some cases, uh, two notaries have been recommended by some legislatures. So, you know, the, the, the battle continues for access and fairness in the voting process. And clearly, the, the Republicans, in, in light of the outcome of the 2020 election, have uh, stepped up and are stepping up their, their approach and their attacks on just what will be allowed or not allowed when it comes to voting in many of these states. And again, as I mentioned, there are more than 33 states that have filed some form of voter change bills, whether restrictive changes or expansive changes. So, you know, something that we will keep an eye on um, and we'll move and talk a little bit about some other elements of uh, voter restriction that are occurring in a couple of specific states. And it should be noted that if you were thinking that these efforts are in uh, Democratic states uh, that, you know, voted for Biden, uh, by the large majority, these states actually uh, voted for uh, former President Trump for re-election. Uh, and, you know, are these, these measures are engage to make sure that, you know, the perceived uh, voter fraud, whether it existed or not, and every indication and all of the court cases and all of the legislative battles that have uh, occurred around the 2020 election uh, found no evidence of substantial uh, voter fraud. Uh, you know, side note, it, it should be noted that in every election, there are always some outliers, a few uh, ballots or, you know, a few dozen ballots, but nothing that would swing a major election. And clearly, as the uh, battles that were dismissed in the courts up to and including the Supreme Court uh, by the Trump campaign, you know, after the election, uh, clearly pointed that, you know, no evidence of uh, systemic um voter fraud was found or or presented. Um, but earlier, as I said, Florida is taking kind of a leadership role in the voter uh, restrictions in they are, you know, curtailing the length of time that you can stay on a vote by mail uh, permanent list. Uh, they are stepping up their ID requirements to cast a ballot, uh, they are also talking about, uh, you know, cases where a, a notary signature or two notary signatures may be required, uh, along with, you know, more positive ID on the witnesses that sign those. So, you know, there is an ongoing uh, effort uh, 
that is going to continue as we move uh, toward the uh, midterm elections in 2022 and beyond that to the next general election in 2024 where more of these actions to restrict the the access to the polls by you know certain groups and and make no mistake many of these rules are going to impact the disenfranchised communities in these states much more than they are going to disenfranchise uh, the more affluent communities in these states uh, as proved in the November election. Um, clearly, uh, many of these, um, although veiled in kind of a statewide uniformity, are really intended to impact those who are at the most risk of not being able to meet the requirements, typically communities of color, uh, disenfranchised groups, you know, poor people, etc. So it, this is something that whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, it, it is something that you need to pay attention to. It is something that you need to, you know, make sure that you are letting your elected officials um, at the state level in particular, because it, it is not the federal government that controls how we individually vote in whichever state we live in. Elections are run by the states as defined in the Constitution. The federal government has no real role in how the elections for uh, local, state, and, and national offices are held. That is all governed by the states. So you need to make sure that you understand your state voter registration policies, your state voting policies. Uh, and as we said countless times prior to the general election in 2020, you know, make sure that you routinely check on your voter status, that you are still, in fact, registered. As many of these states are looking to limit the amount of time you can spend on that automatic absentee voter roll, you want to make sure that you keep that information up to date. So, you know, just more to be aware of. And, you know, continuing, you know, as we talk about voter and voter rights uh, and all of that, an article that came out of Vox uh, on the 23rd of February talks about uh, the Supreme Court is about to hear two cases that could destroy what remains of the Voting Rights Act. You know, and the, the article uh, by Ian Milheiser, and again, this came out from Vox on February 23rd, and uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it for you. Actually, if we follow the timeline uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, the Supreme Court uh, will hear two cases that could shred much of what remains of the right to be free from racial discrimination at the polls. The defendant's arguments in two consolidated cases, Brinovich versus Democratic National Committee and Arizona Republican Party versus Democratic National Com Committee, are some of the most aggressive attacks on the right to vote to reach the Supreme Court in the post-Jim Crow era. These two DNC cases concern two Arizona laws 
that make it more difficult to vote. The first requires voting officials to discard in their entirety ballots cast in the wrong precinct rather than just not counting the votes for local candidates who the voter should not have been able to vote for. The second prohibits many forms of ballot collection where a voter gives their absentee ballot to someone else and that person delivers that ballot to the election office. Uh, the article goes on to say the most important question in DNC cases isn't whether these two particular Arizona laws will be upheld or struck down, but whether the court will announce a legal rule that guts one of America's most important civil rights laws. And, as the article says, there's reason to fear that it will. The Supreme Court doesn't just have a 6-3 Republican majority. It's a majority that includes several justices who have shown a great deal of hostility toward voting rights generally and the Voting Rights Act in particular. And just quickly by way of history, the Voting Rights Act is a landmark law that President Lyndon Johnson signed to end white supremacist election laws in 1965 and that Pro President Ronald Reagan signed legislation expanding in 1982. Essentially, it held that if any state wanted to change, uh, or if any of a specific collection of states, uh, most typically the ones that were formerly the, the Confederate states during the Civil War, um, or states that have a, a long history of voter suppression and segregation and so forth. If they, want to, if they wanted to make changes to their voting uh, policies, they had to get federal approval in order to do it. So that's the, essential, that's the essential meaning of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, it, it provided three safeguards against racist election laws. Section 5 of the law required states and local governments with a history of racist voting practices to pre-clear any new election rules with officials in Washington, D.C., as I just mentioned. Section 2, meanwhile, provides two separate protections against discrimination. If a plaintiff can show that an election law was enacted for the purpose of making it harder for voters of a certain race to vote, then that law violates the Voting Rights Act's intent test and should be struck down. At the same time, the Voting Rights Act also prohibits any state law that results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. So even if there wasn't a racist intent it may still be struck down if it violates this results test, uh, which prohibits some state and local election rules that have disproportionate impact on voters of color. So, you know, there, there's a lot to, to be uh, interested in in this case, primarily that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who was a junior attorney, uh, a ju yeah, junior attorney when the the law was being debated and um, in, in the Reagan administration's Justice Department, um, he was the you know, de facto point person on this issue for the conservative faction. 
drafting memos, prepping more senior attorneys, and working with senators who believed that uh, the decision, you know, a, a prior decision relating to this should stand. Uh, ultimately, however, President Reagan rejected the conservative faction's arguments and signed the amendment to the Section 2 over Roberts' objections. The results test was explicitly written into the U.S. legal code. So, you know, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has a history with this uh, case and with this legislation, and, you know, it, it, it may play a role. What the article goes on to say in, in sum is that uh, while the possibility is there that the Voting Rights Act might be stricken down, more than likely what the court is going to come out and say is, is make recommendations and restrictions that are really going to uh, take the bite out of the Voting Rights Act and make it, um, you know, very, very, uh, you know, toothless, for lack of a better word. Um, so it remains to be seen how that's going to progress. As I said, the arguments will be heard tomorrow. Uh, and we will wait some number of weeks or months for the Supreme Court to issue their ruling. But it is something that we will keep our eye on and let you know what we find out. All right, let's take our break here. Uh, we will continue our discussion and move over to CPAC. And uh, when we come back, we will break down a little bit of what former President Trump had to say and some other things that we've heard coming out of, of CPAC. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this break. Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because of the COVID-19 virus, we have had to learn new ways to be together. We've had to find new ways to communicate. We have to find new ways to play. And we have to find new ways to keep each other safe. For myself and my family, I'm going to take the COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about the vaccine, go to cdc.gov. Let's do this together. And welcome back. The uh, preceding message was brought to you by your friends here at Fired Up Radio and at wjmsradio.com. All right, let's get back into it. Uh, before we get into the Donald Trump speech at CPAC, I uh, want to go through the other big news story of the week, uh, although there were quite a few. This one uh, rose above all the others, uh, given its broad scope and, and assistance that's being provided to very desperately needed areas of the country. And that is that the House... Uh, passed its $1.9 trillion pandemic bill uh, on a near-party line vote. And uh, this is from an article that was published uh, by AP on February 27th. And I will you know, read some of the highlights of the article, and it's from Alan Fram, again, the Associated Press. Uh, the House approved a $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill early Saturday in a win for President Joe Biden, even as top Democrats tried assuring agitated progressives that they'd revive their derailed drive to boost the minimum wage. The new president's vision for flushing cash to individuals, businesses, states, and cities battered by COVID-19 was passed in the House on a near-party line 219 to 212 vote. 
That shifts the massive measure to the Senate, where Democrats seem bent on resuscitating their minimum wage push and fights could erupt over state aid and other issues. Democrats said the still faltering economy and the half million American lives lost demand quick, decisive action. GOP lawmakers, they said, were out of step with a public that polling shows largely largely views the bill favorably. Uh, Republicans said the bill was too expensive and said too few education dollars would be spent quickly to immediately reopen schools. They said that it was laden with gifts to Democratic constituencies like labor unions and funneled money to Democratic-run states they suggested didn't need it because their budgets had bounced back. To my colleagues, and this is a quote, to my colleagues who say this bill is bold, I say it's bloated, close quote, uh, said House, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Quote, to those who say it's urgent, I say it's unfocused. To those who say it's popular, I say it is entirely partisan. Again, close quote, and that's from Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House of Representatives. Moderate Democratic representatives Jared Golden of Maine and Kurt Schrader of Oregon were the only two lawmakers to cross party lines. That sharp partisan divide is making the fight a showdown over who voters will reward for heaping more federal spending to combat the coronavirus and revive the economy atop the $4 trillion approved last year. The battle is also emerging as an early test of Biden's ability to hold together his party's fragile congressional majorities, just 10 votes in the House and an evenly divided 50-50 Senate. At the same time, Democrats are trying to figure out how to assuage progressives who lost their top priority in a jarring Senate setback on Thursday. The, chamber, the Senate chamber's nonpartisan parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, said Senate rules require that a federal minimum wage increase would have to be dropped from the COVID-19 bill, leaving the proposal on life support. The measure would gradually lift that minimum to $15 an hour by 2025, doubling the current $7.25 floor in effect since 2009. Hoping to revive the effort in some form, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is considering adding a provision to the Senate version of the COVID-19 relief bill that would penalize large companies that don't pay workers at least $15 an hour, said a senior Democratic aide who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss internal conversations. This was in line with ideas floated Thursday night by Senators Bernie Sanders, a chief sponsor of the $15 plan, and Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden to boost taxes on corporations that don't hit certain minimum wage targets. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi offered encouragement too, calling the minimum wage increase a financial necessity for our families, a great stimulus for our economy, and a moral imperative for our country. She said the House would absolutely approve a final version of the relief bill because of its widespread benefits, even if we lacked progressives' treasured goal. So the, the battle lines, uh, particularly in the Senate, appear to be drawn. And the, as it said in the article, 
the parliamentarian who is nonpartisan uh, ruled that the wage increase and the minimum wage increase uh, cannot be included in the bill uh, if the Democrats are going to move it through uh, the uh, budget reconciliation process uh, rather than bring it to the floor for a uh, vote that would require 60 votes for them to get, which is not likely for them to get it. So the, the reconciliation process is the only way the Democrats have of getting the bill uh, through the Senate and uh, on to conference committee where the differences with the House bill would be resolved and then the final bill would be revoted and moved up to the president for his signature. Um, you know, one of the arguing points that this is, is bringing to the front is a, another argument on what the status is supposed to be for the filibuster. Uh, and a, a number of representatives uh, have said, you know, quote, we're going to have to reform the filibuster because we have to be able to deliver, close quote. And that came from Representative Pramila J. Powell, a uh, Democrat of Washington State, who is among the uh, progressive group in the Democratic House. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, another high-profile progressive, also said Senate rules must be changed, telling reporters that when Democrats meet with their constituents, we can't tell them that this didn't get done because of an unelected parliamentarian. Uh, you know, and this, this battle has been going back and forth for some weeks now where discussions have been held on what exactly to do with the filibuster. And, you know, there have been proposals made ranging from eliminating it entirely, which, you know, although would then make all bills uh, to be uh, handled by a simple majority, uh, with the exception of the highest level, um, which would make all bills going through the Senate uh, re require only a majority vote. Uh, rather than have the the 60 vote uh, supermajority uh, be required on you know some bills that meet the criteria under Senate rules, um, as as stated in uh, all of the preliminary information coming out about the bill, the overall bill would provide $1,400 payments to individuals extend emergency unemployment benefits through August, and increase tax credits for children and federal subsidies for health insurance. It also provides billions for schools and colleges, state and local government, COVID-19 vaccines and testing, renters, food producers, and struggling industries like airlines, airlines restaurants, bars, and concert venues. Democrats are pushing the measure through Congress under special rules, as I mentioned, that would let them avoid a Senate GOP filibuster, meaning that if they are united, they won't need any Republican votes. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. It also lets the bill move faster, a top priority for Democrats who want the bill on Biden's desk before the most recent emergency jobless benefits end on March 14th. And, you know, as I mentioned above, Republicans who oppose the $15 minimum wage uh, target 
it as an expense that would hurt businesses and cost jobs. And, you know, depending upon where you sourced your news, uh, you have heard that there are people who are both pro that argument and against that argument. Uh, so, you know, it, it still is, is an issue of debate as to whether increasing the, fifth, the minimum wage to $15, even over a five-year time span or four-year time span, uh, would you know, hurt businesses, would force, you know, especially small businesses, uh, to suffer and also to cost workers jobs. Um, I said I wanted to touch a little bit on the filibuster. So the, the idea is that, or, or the proposals are, as I said, to eliminate the filibuster or to uh, make it a, a talking only filibuster. Now, what does that mean? Currently, under the, the Senate rules, you can basically filibuster a bill, that is, introduce legislation or introduce a debate on a bill uh, solely for the purpose of delaying that bill moving to a final vote. Uh, in the past, this was done by a, a senator coming to the floor of the Senate and speaking for as long as they could stand up there and speak. And, you know, for, for those of you old enough to remember, if you think back to the, the classic movie, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, Jimmy Stewart stood up on there and, and spoke till he literally had no voice left. Uh, and, and that was kind of the definition of the filibuster uh, as it stood up until the 1970s when it was modified to allow it to be as simple as a file document that said, you know, th that called for debate on an issue, essentially the filibuster, uh, with no requirement for anyone to take to the floor and, and control the floor for an extended period of time. I believe the last time uh, any senator did that was uh, Senator Ted Cruz with his now famous rendition of I Don't Like Green Eggs and Ham uh, that he read uh, to his children who were listening uh, as a bedtime story from the floor of the Senate. Uh, what they would do is basically return to that principle as the only way for a filibuster to be conducted, which would put much more onus on the party, uh, the minority party in particular, uh, to, you know, to maintain that control of the floor uh, for however long they could maintain it uh, without, you know, yielding the floor or giving up or, you know, whatever means that the filibuster would, would be stopped in order to proceed to a vote. The object of it is, is to give the, uh, you know, majority party time to gather a sufficient number of votes to invoke cloture, which we've discussed on this show in previous uh, episodes, which is essentially the motion to close discussion on the bill and move the item to the vote, um, or to give the minority party enough time to move a, a sufficient number of the majority over to their side, thus guaranteeing that the bill would not pass. So. You know, it remains to be seen if there are going to be changes made to the filibuster, 
the problem with it is that you know whichever party eliminates the filibuster eventually the minority party the other party will come into power and they will then um, you know have the ability to move legislation by simple majorities you know across the board so it, it it's kind of that that boomerang effect that you can throw it out there but at some point it's going to circle back around and hit you in the head so you know that's that's kind of what we're facing over the coming weeks and again the object is they want to get this done before the march 14th deadline when you know current uh current support will expire and the concern that republicans have is interesting considering something else i found in the news uh that came out on the 24th and it it relayed uh the expenses and costs that the department of defense has spent on a a new fighter jet the f-35 which over its 20-year development program has cost the american taxpayers 1.8 trillion dollars in development costs and is still not yet completed its testing uh, there are only about 500 have been produced uh, for you know testing and trials although the pentagon envisioned purchasing thousands to replace aging fighter planes like the F-16. Um, you know, and, and one quote from Chairman Reed of the Armed Services, I'm sorry, the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, told Bloomberg that we've been building it and it's still an operational testing and evaluation. And once that finished, and we hope it's finished promptly, then we can make a much more thorough assessment of the system. Some of the things that you know are, are still under development and are not ready yet include simulator training uh, for pilots, uh, include determination as to whether or not uh, it can fire missiles as well as uh, drop or deliver bombs, you know, and and key things that really make this an optimal weapon. Uh, and, and as I said, they've been working on this for 20 years. They've spent $1.8 trillion in development. It's probably $1.8 trillion you've never heard of before. And yet the Senate is making a huge task of the relief for the American people. If this program had been canceled, uh, there'd be $1.8 trillion uh, that would have been available to take care of the COVID problem here in this country. And, you know, there are a, a lot of other uh, expenditure programs, particularly in the Department of Defense, for weapon systems that were, you know, ordered and designed, you know, in, in years past when needs around the world have changed and so forth that probably should be re-looked at, re-evaluated, and assessed as to whether or not they're still worth pursuing or if all that money could be diverted to a, a much more beneficial purpose like say covid relief for the american people um, just something to think about something you might want to consider asking your elected officials about so you know there, there's a lot going on uh, as i've said many times 
you know, you, you, you can't just take uh, what you hear coming out of either the mainstream media or social media or any, a- any other sources without doing your own research, digging deeper, digging wider, and finding out the facts, finding out where the truth is in these stories. So, interesting segue that we'll do going from talking about truth and military spending uh, to the appearance tonight, uh, or rather Sunday night, as I, I record this show, I'm recording it on Sunday. Uh, former President Donald Trump came out of uh, hiding or disappearance or whatever you want to call it to address, address CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference uh, that's being held in Orlando, Florida. And, you know, it it's still too soon uh, as of the time I'm recording this uh, various fact-checking sources that I I refer to uh, still have not completed their fact-check of uh, the former president's speech Um, but you know news articles have started to surface and we can tell you a little bit uh, if you didn't hear the speech uh, it's probably out on some form of social media Although I'm being told that YouTube deleted the video uh, because uh, the former president made some erroneous statements about the 2020 election that violated YouTube's policy. So basically, they, they shut down the video and deleted it uh, midstream. Um, but there are other sources. Uh, I know I watched it on C-SPAN and C-SPAN will likely repeat it, so you should be able to find it out there somewhere. Um, but basically, you know, this had been, had been uh, pitched as, you know, Donald Trump's triumphant return to the spotlight, to, you know, his throne atop the Republican Party, uh, to his role as the Republican Party's kingmaker, Um, And as the opportunity he's presenting to position himself as a major uh, player in the 22 midterm elections and the 2024 general elections. And as he said, you know, he he included statements like, you know, it's far from being over. uh, Trump said about the the quote, incredible journey, close quote. Uh, He said he and his supporters started four years ago. Quote, we will be victorious and America will be stronger and greater than ever before, close quote. Um, he did continue to push his narrative on the November election. Uh, and, you know, just uh, played the denial role that he uh, didn't actually lose the election, but he, in fact, won the election. Uh, and in, at one point... Um, he, he stated, quote, I may even decide to beat them for a third time, uh, the one-term former president said. And, you know, that elicited a, a response from the crowd um, as sort of a tease to perhaps a possible run again in 2024. Um, it, it's clear that, you know, Donald Trump has remained unbowed and unapologetic since you know, both his loss and since the January 6th in, in insurrection. 
Um, you know, although his poll numbers, according to some reports I've seen, uh, are down slightly, uh, he still uh, seemed to have scarcely diminished his political capital. Um, you know, take into account, you know, two impeachments and uh, a loss of the White House, the Senate, and a failure to retake the House. Um, he also used the speech as an opportunity to target by name the Republican lawmakers, all of them, who voted against him uh, and, and saving, you know, special ire for Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, who is the number three uh, Republican in seniority in the House. Uh, of course, he attacked Biden on his immigration policies and then demanding that he get the schools open immediately. Um, he goes on, without any evidence, he claimed that Biden's policy changes are triggering a new crisis at the southern border and creating a youth migrant crisis. He touted his own efforts as president to expand the border wall and said Biden was reversing his administration's accomplishments. Um, he goes on to dismiss any discussion that he was contemplating starting a new political party. And this, this was big news because it had been widely circulated that Donald Trump was actually looking at uh, a, a presidential run in 2024, but under a new political party. Um, and uh, apparently, you know, behind the scenes, uh, somehow he's been convinced that that wouldn't be a good thing. And we talked about this on a previous show where, you know, a, a split uh, Republican ticket between traditional Republicans and the, the Donald Trump MAGA, you know, American Patriot Party would essentially split the vote and would guarantee the Democrats uh, not only increase their majorities, but basically put a lock on the House and Senate for, you know, quite a few election cycles to come. Um, so now he is stating, at least at this point, as of the CPAC speech, that he is you know, going to be part of the Republican Party uh, and he's going to work to unite it and make it stronger than ever before. Um, the other thing, you know, and he, he kind of reiterated this uh, uh, over the course of his speech, you know, in between talking about the lost election and all of the great things he did, um, he took credit for you know, administering 1.25 million uh, doses of the vaccine in the final month, to which um, some might say, well, where was that? You know, the month before that, and the month before that, when the vaccine was available, um, he definitely spent the speech uh, accentuating the positives and the highlights and not talking about any of the negatives. There was no mention of, you know, when he started uh, his encouragement for, you know, battling the, the COVID-19 disease, you know, in mid-March when it actually had arrived on American shores in early February. Um, he did talk about the need to get the vaccine. He actually stated a, an encouragement 
for you know his listeners to get the vaccine so we'll see if that has any impact um when you know when the 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 speech was over and it ran about an hour and a half long uh it 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 really energized the cpac crowd there which is to be expected um it will see it will remain to be seen how polling uh deals with it uh in the overnight hours and and going forward into next week i'll keep an eye on that and any you know interesting news i'll post to the show facebook page uh at fired up radio on facebook.com or i will tweet it out at the shows uh via the show's twitter account at r the letter u fired up on twitter so you know it will be interesting to see what happens going forward now that essentially donald trump has announced that he's back that he's going to be working with uh you know maga supporting candidates particularly with those uh, opposing those legislators that voted against him in his impeachment trials and were uh, less than loyal. Um, you know, so it, it will remain to be seen what the influence of Trump is going to be. So, you know, stay tuned, strap in. Uh, the ride is, is going to get bumpy from here. So and on that note, we're going to wrap up the show for this week. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up Radio right here on WJMSRadio.com. Please make sure that you're staying safe. Uh, reach out to your medical professionals. Find out when uh, in the queue that you can uh, get the vaccine. And once you're eligible, please go get vaccinated. It doesn't matter which of the vaccines you get, just get vaccinated. Uh, in the meantime, keep wearing your mask, keep social distancing, keep up the, the hygiene, and you know, stay safe for yourself, your family, your community, and your country. And as always, I will look forward to talking with all of you again in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.